I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7 as the text for the message this morning. The passage is too long to read all at once. I wouldn't have time to say anything else if I read all 53 verses. So what I want to do is to try to guide you through this passage and help us understand what Stephen, in this longest of all speeches in the book of Acts, is trying to say to us, as well as to the Jews in the council to whom he's speaking. It might help for you to hear what happened as I was meditating on the application yesterday. Asking the Lord, now Lord, this could be just historically interesting for those who have that sort of bent, but I don't want it to be merely historically interesting. I want it to have relevance for me and for this church today. And uh, would you show me at what points it should be brought to bear and the, the two points at which it came home most powerfully was this book and that new worship center. And so hold in your mind the question as I walk through what bearing might it have on this book and my editing of it and I'm moving into that worship center. And I think if you're listening carefully, you will begin to pick up relevances for those two things and then I hope more issues in your own life to whom this to which this uh, relates first let's get the setting before us verse 14 of chapter 6 we learn the charges we saw them a couple of weeks ago but let's remind ourselves Stephen is under arrest he's before the council what are the charges verse 14 chapter 6 we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, number one, will destroy this place, this temple. Number two, will change the customs of Moses that he delivered to us. Now, those are the two charges. Stephen is against the temple and God, and he's against the law and Moses. Arrest him. And they did. And now in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says... Is this so? And Stephen does a very amazing thing. He tells a story, a long story. It's not as long as the Old Testament, but it's a summary of the Old Testament. It's a story of the people of Israel. He talks about Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, and he winds up talking about the temple, which was the issue that got him stoned. And we'll hear about that next week. I want you to turn to the conclusion of his message. Chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. We will understand the message better if we see where he was heading. So let's read his conclusion first, starting at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, what was Stephen's defense? He was accused here. His life was on the line. He had a chance to defend himself what was he doing here? His defense was this. It is not I 
who resist the Spirit. It is not I who resist Moses. It is not I who kill prophets. It is not I who have a hard heart. It is not I who have a stiff neck. It is you. You repent. Some defense, right? And they killed him. We'll read about that beautiful death next week. Now, I think this message, 53 verse long message, has a double message for us this morning. One message this morning is about God in his patience. And the other message is about God running out of patience and our resisting the Holy Spirit to the point of no return. The message about God's patience is that he is long-suffering, forgiving, repeatedly coming back again and again and again and again to Israel in their hardness of heart and having mercy upon them and sticking with them. And the other message is there is a too late. There is a too late. Let me show you that in verse 42 because we are not prone to believe that today. Verse 42, we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but just to see it at the outset. God turned and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. So God wants to minister to us this morning by awakening us to this truth that you can resist him too long. You can want other things so much more that he stops giving Gracious feelings of guilt. He stops giving the gracious feelings of guilt. And turns away and delivers you into the hand of your sin. And we'll see in verse 43, which is nothing less than the hand of demons, Moloch and the god Rephan. It's the dangerous thing to play games with God, to mock him, to say, I will sin tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and then perhaps playing on the mercy of God, I will repent in the last hour. You may wake up some morning and have no will to repent anymore. Now, both of these messages, the message of God's long-suffering and the message of warning, are messages of grace. They are messages of mercy, God wooing us to himself this morning. And they're messages about this book. And they're messages about that new worship center. I want to try to show you as we move through the sermon together, through the message of Stephen. Now, the way I think we should get at these two messages is to take them, not one running through and then the other running through, but both of them together. We'll stop on Moses or Abraham, then on Joseph, and then on Moses. Let's take them in that order. Verse 2. Verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And then in verse 4. Abraham makes it halfway to the promised land and settles down with his kindred in Haran.
And God is merciful and kicks him in the pants, which is a paraphrase of the second half of verse 4. And after his father died, God removed him. That's a strong word now. God removed him from there into the land which you now are living. So God's mercy begins by choosing Abraham out of all the peoples on the earth to receive blessing and inheritance and a land. And then when he goes halfway with his kindred, not leaving them behind, not going all the way to the promised land, God doesn't quit. He kicks him all the way to the promised land. I'm not going to finish on you. You didn't obey me. I won't leave you. And there's the beginning. There's the beginning of the God of the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament is not eager to quit on anybody. And you see it again and again and again as you move through. Let's go to Joseph, verse 9. Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham and one of the patriarchs, verse 9. And the patriarchs, now here comes another resistance to God, another stiff-necked, rebellious trait, jealous of Joseph. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, what Stephen wants us to hear at that point is that the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, resisted God. They stiffened their neck and they said, look, we're not going to take any dreams from this guy. We don't care if it is from God that we might have to bow to him someday. We don't like it and we can get rid of him. We're not going to bow to this rascal. And that's the stiff-neckedness that Stephen is referring to. When they're jealous and they will not accept God's moving to them for grace. Now, what does God do to them? Does God say, all right, I'll take Joseph, get rid of these rest of these patriarchs, and we'll start over again with Joseph. That's not what he does. In and through their very sinning, he saves them. That's the story of Joseph. It's an awesome story. Read the story of Joseph, 37 to 50 in the book of Genesis. You see it, verses 9 to 10. But God was with Joseph, rescued him from out of all of his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom. I can't help but hear those two words as as echoing Stephen's own character, by the way. Grace and wisdom. Before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him governor over Egypt. In other words, through all their jealousy, through all their sin, through selling him into Egypt, God kept on working for their salvation because they were going to go down there, bow to their hated brother and receive life and salvation and deliverance through the one that they had rejected. It's Jesus. You can see Jesus being typified here. And God. Let's go to Moses. Moses was raised up now 400 years later to deliver the people, and he came to them to reveal himself as the judge and deliverer appointed by God in verse 26. He mercifully tries to reconcile to Israelites, men, your brethren, why are you wronging each other? And, and in verse 27, the man who's wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and deliverer over us? And there you see it again. Jealousy over Joseph. Who made you a ruler and deliverer over us to Moses, the stiff-necked? We don't need a deliverer. We can handle things ourselves. Now, what does God do now? Say, well, forget those people down in Egypt. I'll take Moses and make a new people. And he doesn't do that either. Verse 34, Moses had gone out to the wilderness. and God says, I have surely seen the ill treatment of my people that are in Egypt and heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. And now come. I will send you to Egypt. And then verse 36, he led them out, 
having performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. They are not still submissive. Verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but thrust him aside and in their hearts at Sinai, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to an idol and rejoiced in the work of their hands. And at that point, the patience of God for many of them was over. Verse 42, God turned and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. In other words, since they reject the true God and the true worship, God will hand them over to the false God and the false worship. And verse 43 paints the picture in its worst light. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the God Rephan. And it was over for those people. But it wasn't over for all of Israel. Verse 45. They came to the promised land. And it says that the Israelites dispossessed the nations which God thrust out before our fathers. He was still working for them. There was a remnant according to grace. And God kept working for them in their rebellion. Now. We arrive at the point of the temple in this message. He refers to David as the one who did not build it, and then to Solomon as the one who did build it in verse 47. The temple that they prized so highly and that Jesus said, I will destroy and build again in three days. And this is the key word that he says in verse 48 about the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. Now, right here, I heard in that verse, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. I heard the key to this whole message. And the question I asked was, what's the root evil of the Israelites here? What is this uncircumcised heart? What is this stiff neck? What is this resistance of the Holy Spirit again and again? What is the root of it? What's the essence of it? And I saw the answer in a parallel between verse 41 and 48. Let me show you what I saw. In verse 41, Stephen says that they offered sacrifices to the calf, to the idol. And here are the key words. And they rejoiced in the work of their hands. We've made this God. And then you get to verse 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. Now, let me try to sum up from this what I think the root evil is. The fundamental problem that they were guilty of is simply this. They found their fulfillment their joy, their meaning, their worth, their significant in what they could make with their hands. And that's it. 
They wanted a kind of God and they wanted a kind of worship that would allow them to demonstrate their own power, their own virtues, their own morality, their own zeal for righteousness. We're not talking secularism here. We're talking about radically self-centered worship in the name of God and for their own glory. They were not about to worship a God so free, so great, so sovereign, so self-sufficient that he gets all the credit for everything they do that's good. For everything they make and everything they are, he gets the glory. No way. Their neck was like steel and they would not bow to such a God. Their nose would would be kept high and they were subtly then turning worship into self-worship. The temple in Jerusalem, I conclude, had become for many in Israel a symbol of what they could achieve. And that was why it was coming down. When Jesus said, I will destroy this temple, what he meant was, I will destroy that religion. I will destroy the religion whose religion is to find its joy not in God, but in the works of its own hands, the achievements of its own heart and its own will. And Stephen saw it as clear as the noonday sun because he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. You hear those two words? Faith and the Holy Spirit. Faith looks away from itself and says, I trust God to be my provider and my satisfaction and my treasure and my treasure and my help and everything. And over here, I welcome you, Holy Spirit, because I don't have the strength. I don't have the will. I don't have anything. I need you. You alone can be what I need to be so that you get the glory. God gets the glory. When you are a person like that, you see what's wrong with this religion. Now, today, I think God wants us to hear this message in two ways. I think he wants us to hear on the one hand that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, showing faithfulness and steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He wants us to hear the story of his faithfulness. God is in no hurry to punish anybody. God is not eager to find fault. God is slow to anger. That's the message I want you to hear first. When you read the story of Israel, I was reading Psalm 78 with the family this morning. Exactly the same story. Read it this afternoon. Again and again and again they rebel, they fall down, they cry out, he comes. Read the book of Judges. Read the book of Judges. Every man acts and does what is right in his own eyes. Their enemy comes in, destroys them. They cry out, oh, have mercy. He has mercy. Again and again and again. God will come back again. If you can repent, you have not gone too far. The second message the Lord wants us to hear is that there's a warning not to find fulfillment in the work of your own hands. So I said, Lord, how does that relate to me? And the Lord said, it relates to this book. 
When I, when I got this book in the mail two weeks ago, with my name here at the bottom, along with Wayne Grudem's, I just kind of fondled it, you know? I looked at it, it's blue and gold and 566 pages. I took it to Pizza Hut when we went out and laid it on the table. And the Lord said, uh, you got two choices. Either this book will be a tent of meeting in the wilderness, imperfect, where you will and others may meet God and enjoy God, God's truth, God's way, God's beauty. Or this book will be a golden calf and you will bow down and Joy in the works of your hands. It's so subtle. It is so subtle. And the second application is to all of us as we go into the new worship center. It will be beautiful. It will be bright. And for those of you who are pulling and fanning, it will be air-conditioned. Its acoustics will be wonderful. Its commons will be refreshing. Its huge nursery will be gladly received by all parents. And it is so dangerous. It is so dangerous. I walk in there two, three times a week now, and I feel the glory and the danger. That we could either make it into a a tent of meeting, in the wilderness, imperfect, where we might meet God, or it could become in all of its beauty a golden calf. And we could, in our very worship, with all the right words, fall prey to self-worship, delighting more in the things of our own hands than in God. Picture yourself walking in there on the first Sunday and maybe the Lord would cause the sun to shine and the huge diamond windows on either side letting light gush through so much brighter than this room here. Will we at that moment find ourselves caught up into God who says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness? Will we remember that God said one day this candle called the sun 93 million miles away, a billion times brighter God will shine in the kingdom. And His glory will be the sun and the lamp will be the lamb and there will be no more moon, there will be no more sun. And all this light will be as nothing to us for the hope of the glory of God alone. Will we perform that kind of worship transaction in our heart Or will we say, hmm, well designed. Hmm, we did it. It's dangerous, brothers and sisters. And I believe the Lord is giving us opportunities here in advance to get our hearts ready. And I could go a third application, but I'll just leave it to you. What are the works of your hands that you love? Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? Therefore, instead of delighting in the work of our hands, let us delight in God, from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. To him alone be glory forever and ever. The glory for what we write, the glory for what we build, the glory for what you make, whether it's a meal or a portfolio or a house. Let's pray. My prayer is that God would have been like I heard Terry Nelson say between services, sort of graciously, tenderly softening the back of his neck. God does not like to break necks. He likes to soften them. And it may be that he's working on you right now and and humbling you and making you submissive and Yielding your heart to delight in him rather than the works of your own hands over which you have control and for which you write the law. And if that's true, we'll have a couple of teams ready to pray here at the front afterwards. And it would be a wonderful thing if some of you would just seek them out about anything at all and say, would you pray with me that God would continue to work in my life? They'd love to pray with you about anything. There'll be some time between the services. Father, I thank you for your mercy now. And I thank you for your warnings. And above all, I thank you for your glory, which satisfies our hearts. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing I desire compares with you. Sing it with me.